Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Education, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Christina Bosch, a host on this channel. I want to begin today's interview by first acknowledging that it is being recorded exactly one year after the murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is, of course, the settler name for the unceded territory of indigenous First Nations. One of the reflections about the year since May 25th, 2020 that I've heard circulating today is that it has been defined by people having conversations about race that they had never engaged in before. In that vein, I couldn't be more honored to welcome Dr. Jamila Liscott to this New Books Network interview to discuss her 2019 book, Black Appetite, White Food. Amongst many other talents and initiatives, Dr. Liska is an author, scholar activist, spoken word artist, teacher educator, and founding co-director of the Center for Racial Justice at University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time, Dr. Liska, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm deeply honored to to share time and space with you, um, especially on a a day like this, as you mentioned, um, which has become sacred for so many of us. That's right. So thank you so much for being here again. Um, And I guess I was wondering if we could begin with um, actually a few words that you wrote about yourself in Black Appetite, White Food. And then you um, uh, could give listeners, especially those, you know, who may be listening from outside the Northeast or outside the U.S. even, a bit of an introduction um, to yourself. I knew from the book, for example, that you quote, I love this line, so that's why I wanted to start off with it, uh, quote, grew up on the intersection of Jefferson Avenue and Marcus Garvey Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, at the intersection of slave owner and liberation leader, at the intersection of white supremacy and black power. Could you tell us more about your lineages and pathways connecting the past to who you are today? Absolutely. Um, You know, so much of of the narratives that have shaped me exist at the intersections of the critical consciousness that was cultivated by the culture in my home unapologetically as I have um, Caribbean heritage and how colorful and powerful and um, just majestic blackness operates throughout uh, that Caribbean culture as well as the black American culture, which I'm, I'm situated in alongside being, you know, having been socialized into institutions, mostly school growing up, that that rest on white supremacy and have no interest or room for the fullness of who we are. And so that juxtaposition, those intersections, those tensions, those conflicts, um, I've navigated for my entire life. And so to live at that, the, you know, to, to look up and to see that those cross streets just, you know, it made me chuckle. Um, 
because I think it's just so emblematic of, of what it means to be here in America and to constantly live in contradictions. Totally. Yes. And, and I think, um, so much of that background that you just shared is alive in your writing and your narrative style, if I could call it that. Um, a recent review, yes. I mean, and that's what makes it a pleasure to read also. Um, a recent review by Michael Boucher, I hope I'm saying his name right, in the Teacher's College Record observed that your use of poetry woven throughout the book, quote, illuminates identity your identity for us. And the reflected light reveals our own unseen corners. And I just, yeah, I really loved that insight um, because it resonated with my experience reading the book. I feel like it really honors your talent as a writer educator, you know, like transmitting wisdom through wor- through written word. And so I, I was also wondering if like that might, um, be a useful segue to sort of how you came to write this book because so much of your identity is um, transmitted to us throughout the the use of genre and language in the book. So yeah, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this this book, Black Appetite, White Food? Yeah, you know, I came to this book after spending several years being invited into mostly predominantly white institutions to speak about um, the intersections of language, race, and power. Following my 2014 TED Talk, Three Ways to Speak English, so many institutions across the nation invited me to come and to think about the, you know, to unpack the relationship between that talk and my ongoing research and scholarship and scholar activism, actually. And um, in navigating, you know, and in, in just doing that work, in doing that work, um, and, and also being having two feet on the ground in the community with youth of color, um, with my people, I again was grappling with the tensions of what it means to be unapologetically Black and to know fully the genius and joy and legacy of that and be confronted with so much whiteness at every turn that that seeks to entice us away from the fullness of who we are. Um, Doing that work and going from institution to institution and essentially starting to feel like I'm trying to translate who we are, explain away who we are in the name of quote unquote racial equity and justice. It compelled me to like just pull together this book that told the story of what I feel is really happening here as we are all essentially forced to deal with white supremacy, even though our our appetites long for so much more and so much that's connected to our own heritages and legacies and histories. And so in doing that, I decided like, I want to to archive something, um, particularly for folks in the community, for educators, for activists that that does this work. and I started to write it. What's wild, this is what I'm talking about. So what's wild is that I started to write the book in a way that I felt like a book should be written, which means that I just really started writing the book like through a white supremacist lens. Like it's, it's, I started to write the book in a way I was socialized to understand what a book should sound like. 
And I actually was listening to a sermon one day, an online sermon, and something about the sermon shook me up and was like, yo, like, I can't even remember the nature of it, but I remember it being a turning point for me. And I, I was like, I am not, I am literally doing what I'm speaking against in this book, right? So I needed to write the book in my own voice. I restructured everything and sent my editors an entirely new, a, a manuscript that I didn't propose because it's not what I proposed to them. What I proposed to them was what a book should sound like. Um, yeah, I sent, I sent them that and they were like, we love it. And I was in shock because I was like, I need to speak and I need to show up in a way that fully represents the complexity, um, the linguistic dexterity, the magic of, of my cultures and my people. And, um, I did it against even pushing against the, the little, what I say is like a little white man in my head that's always trying to police what I'm doing. Um, and I wrote the book that way and, and I'm, I'm grateful. I'm deeply grateful that I was shaken out of the temptation to replicate and reify the very things that I seek to upend in my life and in my work. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing that. I, I, I can only imagine that your experience and sh- sharing that writer's process will um, hopefully really resonate with with listeners who 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 are who go through the same thing when they um, when they go to write, especially obviously listeners who are uh, black in America. Um, I'm I'm also just you know now I'm not sure I'm going to be able to go in the order of my interview questions, <laughs> but because I just want to pull up this one quote that seems you know just um, a great kind of add on to what you were just saying. That's, that's from the book where you, you wrote, um, quote, responding to white privilege at the expense of actualizing a tangible vision for a world outside of white privilege was indeed recentering and reifying white privilege. (laughs) So, right. Like that's exactly what, um, you're speaking to in that, in that window into your process. Yes. It's like, this actually, folks might not know it because the, the, the writing that's public facing is the, it has gone through the process, but it's actually, um, challenging to not like replicate that conditioning. It's an automatic thing. It has been an automatic thing for me to just replicate the way I've been socialized into into whiteness, into elitism, into the norms, what's normative in schools and in, in our culture as as intellectual, I sometimes like I have to break free of that before I can like tap into my voice each and every time. And so it's a constant battle to imagine sometimes, sometimes it's 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 strange because it, it, it depends on what I'm coming up to, right? So if I'm writing a book. Of course, I exist organically in my life and, and we exist organically, but there are so many ways that we end up, if you ask the Black person how they speak when they pick up the phone, we all know well that when we pick up the phone, we speak in a white voice, right? Because to some to imagine ourselves outside of whiteness, to even imagine what that self would look like, sound like, feels, feel like, is a radical act. It's actually a mode of survival to continue to be in alignment with that. So when I pick up the phone call 
and I put on my white voice is because it, it will cost too much for me to sound black, right? And so I have to, in order to protect my interests, in order to um, preserve the vision of what I'm trying to accomplish, I have to accommodate that, that call to whiteness. And it's very disturbing. It's very sick, but there's a conditioning that happens there that I think we're always resisting. And so there are fugitive spaces in our lives where we are constantly ourselves, but then there are some spaces that, you know, the moment you step into it, you're, you're in that duality of like that double consciousness that, that Du Bois speaks about. And I'm like, oh, let me break free from this and have full ownership over my voice, even in the spaces where it feels dangerous to do so. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, I, I mean, I obviously have heard of double consciousness as a white person. I don't experience that. But the, the binary tensions like that you lay out throughout the book, right? Like, I feel like experientially kind of um, parallel that experience. So, for example, you begin, right, by uh, literally saying that Black Appetite white food is rooted in tensions. And I'm not, I don't remember if you, you know, cast them explicitly as binaries, but they clearly are, like excellence and erasure, right? Access versus assimilation, um, and so this, be- this is the opening into a big theme in the book, like, and binaries are just like <laughs> our eternal struggle, I feel like, um, uh, in, in the academy. But, um, so you, you, you invite readers in this book, right, to envision what they're fighting for, especially when they associate themselves with struggles for social justice and racial justice in particular, um, envision what they're fighting for while also guiding the readers through ways to fight against white supremacy, right? So again, just that like binary tension there. Um, can you talk a little bit about like, you know, you talk about it a ton in in the book in terms of reflections on um, work that you've done with people, right? Like in education spaces, and you've alluded to it, I think, also here in what you're talking about. But yeah, can you just talk a little bit about the balancing act in our imaginations and our actions involved in fighting against while also fighting for? Yeah, I'm of the mind that so much of what we are fighting against is what other people are fighting for. And so those people who insist on upholding white supremacy and white supremacist structures and the intersecting systems of oppression are fighting for, are dreaming up and manifesting and sustaining and building and creating the things that we end up constantly responding to. And it becomes a trap if we get so entrenched in responding to other people's dreams that we don't have dreams of our own, right? And so at the same time, like we know that right now the abolitionist movement is prevalent. And when people hear abolition, they typically think about it as destruction. And abolition is about what needs to be dismantled, but also what needs to be imagined, dreamed, created, uh, manifested, right? What needs to be built. And and it, it has to be the both end. Because if not, we then become victims of that cycle 
and feed the energy of the thing that we're up against. It is, it is almost, it is so difficult in the, the many roles that I navigate as a journal editor, as a center director, as a professor, as an author, as all the things to imagine how to, how to embody and inhabit these, these spaces outside of the grip of white supremacy. Like, what would it even look like? What would it look like to edit a journal that wasn't guided or circumscribed by the values and ideologies of white supremacy about what is scholarship, what is intellectual, what is worthy of of, um, this arena of academia? What would it look like to have um, a, a center embedded in a in a university without? Is it possible? You know what I mean. And and it 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 almost it almost sometimes feels like the answer is no. And it almost feels like the most we can do is keep pushing the bounds. And I sit with that. Like, what are my dreams? Not just to dismantle white supremacy, but to create black liberation. Right. Um, it looks different. It's also I found and, and I try to do this a lot in the book as well, is to think about the way that we navigate our own personal healing and 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 the personal journeys in our lives. It also reflects, it has reflected in my personal life journeys, like when I'm coming up against um a tension, a storm, like something that's in my life, it is, it's a different energy to be consumed about around what I'm fighting against versus the highest me that I'm fighting for. Like it's a different motivation. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I think it's really important. It's something, it's something really important about fighting for my highest self as opposed to fighting against the, like a life of fighting against the obstacles in my way, as opposed to fighting a, fighting for my highest self, to me would be a, a, a poorly lived life. And so I see that in the work as well. Ooh, chills, chills, Dr. J. Yes, um, yes, thank you for that. Um, I guess so related, I'm curious then, you know, if you could connect that to what I what I consider, please correct me if I'm wrong, but really like a rhetorical move that you made in the book, rhetorical, strategic, I I don't know, you know what the best word is, but um, I don't know that many authors that I've encountered, which I, you know, I have a long ways to go in, in my reading, but I don't know that many people um, make the choice to not provide a fixed definition of white privilege. Now, given everything you just said, I think it makes, you know, a ton of sense. Um, Readers who aren't familiar with the book obviously may not know that you decide not to provide a fixed definition of white privilege. And one of the things you say, quote, is that it's an intentional invitation for readers to grapple with, to illuminate and grapple with the understandings that they bring to the table of white privilege, white supremacy. Um, if I, I would love to hear you talk, if you can, about how that move has has functioned. If you're able to, you know, gauge that at all, or um, just you know, if you reflect on on that decision and what it has produced. Um, yeah, yeah. I saw a TikTok one day, 
And it was like, you know, it was like comedy. And there were like two black men and they were just like, yo, so you mean to tell me that white people have figured out like astrophysics and neuroscience and <laughs> all these things, right? There's so much of that um, that we we frame in our current society as being attributed to mostly like white scholars or white people. But when it comes to the conversation about race and white supremacy, all of a sudden everybody's confused, right? It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for even people to be genuinely confused for centuries now. Like, you know, so I, I even, I even, and I try to push it in the book too. Like I even, you know, I take, I take it up. I really confront folks who are just like constantly in the listening and learning phase and feels like they just need to understand. It's like, yo, like that's a privilege, right? To be always listening and learning and not, and not doing the work. And so part of the part of the reason why I refuse it, there's many, there's layers to it. So one, as a society, we tend to believe in definitions once there's a couple of letters behind somebody's name and it absolves every person of the responsibility of how we create this meaning every day, right? Language doesn't create us. We create language. We, so, so at the end of the day, we are, we are living and breathing white privilege in our society. It's pervasive. And to be overly fixated on someone else's definition of it, to me, is a bit of a cop-out. I am all about the operational definition. I, I, I am all about people taking the time to unpack the way these things manifest themselves and, and how we're each situated in it. And I love the idea of being in conversation with other people's definitions of it. But I think I think we make so much of the meaning that we live and, and we pretend that we don't understand more than we do. And I, and I, I do this with my students all the time, all the time. Um, because what I, what, I, what I try to challenge them to do is to flatten the hierarchies that have them feeling that they are not knowledge producers, right? That that all of us are knowledge producers, that there's organic intellectualism and power and genius in every corner of this earth, whether it's validated by academia, school, or whatever. And so you're making meaning every day. It doesn't matter if someone labels it and prints it somewhere and publishes and says it's real. It's real every day. And I want people to contend with that not to contend with the representative, the, the representation of white supremacy is it's, it's, you know, stated out really nicely in print. I want people to contend with the way that we make meaning and make this happen every day. And I get that that's complicated. It's abstract. It's not what we're used to because it's like, you know, we need something to go from, um, which is why I'm fine with folks being in conversation about it, but we are all knowledge producers we are all, you know, we all have the capacity to be complicit in upholding white supremacy and white privilege. And I, and I, and I would like for us to situate ourselves in those definitions as opposed to um, having some distant definition from somewhere else, if that makes sense. Yeah, from, you know, like here I got this from Merriam-Webster or whatever, so I know it's right. Right. Like, come on. Imagine yeah. reading the definition of breathing in, in Merriam-Webster, like, okay, <laughs> that's fine. Like, okay, but I breathe every day. I It's an experiential knowledge, you know, totally. and it's real. And I don't need to see a definition of breathing in, 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 in Webster's to be like, you know, that might actually be a thing. No, it's a, it's real. We all in it. 
every day. And I would offer that, you know, um, you're in the field of education, right? Like it seems to me like with your thinking and your expertise, you could have been in any number of, right, like the the wings of academia. Um, But by asking the reader to come up with their own definition, I feel like you're embodying a different kind of educational approach than the banking education, I'm going to put this in your head type thing, which is, you know, I think also what you're, what you're talking about. Right. So um, I guess along those lines, you know, something that I really appreciate is maybe seems really simple, but the book is divided into two sections, like two overarching sections. Mm -hmm. The first is called naming the problem. And the second is called tools for analysis and action. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about, you know, one of the things I like about that, that structure is that, okay, so we have the two parts, but they're not like, it's not necessarily like problem solution. Right. So I don't know, could you share a little bit with listeners about what those what what kind of organizes those two parts or any of the thinking behind that structure yeah it's more so you know books are i'm in brooklyn so it's you know it's loud and vibrant here just so y'all know um, <laughs> and I, I love every minute of it hell yeah um, most of the time <laughs> so, so books are written in linear ways, right? So things just kind of come out linear, but there's nothing linear about any of those overarching headings. Um, It's really meant to illuminate the concurring work of um, both deepening our critical consciousness and having the lens to see Right, the unlearning, the the unschooling, the the deepening, the expansion, the paradigm shifts, so that we could see beyond our social conditioning, and also thinking about the tangible tools to enact change, to dismantle white supremacy, to actualize critical hope, to 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 labor towards liberation. Like, what does it look like? to understand that both reflection and action are deeply necessary because sometimes we favor one over the other, right? So we got those who are just like, they've been learning for some time now, you know, and just lots of learning and lots of learning, lots of understanding, just engorged with knowledge and then know what you're going to do about it though, you know? And then, and then we have folks who are like, acting without deep knowledge, without understanding the genealogies and histories and ways that that our communities and um, other scholar activists and youth have been theorizing this work. And and both need to happen. Like what is the what what kind of action has been taken? What kind of thinking has been done? It just both needs to happen. So I just parse it out to to illuminate the importance of doing the reflection and analysis work as well as getting the work, right? Because that's what we're doing right now in these institutions. It's like, oh, let's have a PD, you know, let's have an event, let's have a panel. People say a bunch of things 
And we're like, wow, I didn't know that. And then nothing changes about the institution. Nothing structurally changes. And that structural change has to happen. And that's where that action piece comes. I really appreciate that. And also that you raised up um, that books are linear, like there's that's just their format, but that um, that action and reflection or, you know, what Freda called praxis is not linear. And so um, and I, yeah, so I, would, I just really appreciate that you lifted that up and how you handled it as an author. Um, so I guess, um, you know, my last question that is probably not so quick, but um, hopefully <laughs> I can get through this and then we can wrap up is uh, has to do with um, the ways in which, you know, throughout the book you address intersectional oppressions as they uh, occur in in schools. Right. Um, so, for example, you often talk about um, the fact that most urban schools are um, populated by minority majority configurations. I guess that's like a fancy way of saying most urban schools are mostly black and brown kids, while um, most of the teaching population in those schools is usually white. Right. Um, you talk about uh critics of bringing hip hop into the classroom as a serious, you know, weighty uh, curricular material. Um, Critics of doing that on the grounds that hip hop is, you know, sexist or violent. Um, You you rejoin them with uh, the, the reminder that there's no way we can teach about typical topics, right? Like Thomas Jefferson or even Shakespeare responsibly without getting into the issues of misogyny and violence that are there as well. So I guess to wrap up, I would love to just hear your thoughts on, you know, how, how teacher educators, teachers, and students, um, people who are stakeholders in education, you know, formal and informal alike, um, can use this book to sort of struggle in coalitions or alliances, but 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 to disrupt those kinds of intersectional um, oppressions that occur in education. I know that's a huge question. So, whatever piece of that you can pull out would be amazing. Yeah, I mean, thank you. I appreciate that question, and it, it just has me thinking about how fiercely we protect white supremacy by protecting people like Thomas Jefferson and Columbus and Shakespeare and being so bent on sanitizing them that we will not tell the truth. Tell the truth, right? So how about, how about we tell the truth about who these people really are and, and current actors, right, on our social landscape who are continuously advocating for entrenching white supremacy and intersecting systems of oppression more deeply into our reality. How about we tell the truth about that um, stop lying to our students, tell the truth in these books, tell the truth in our representation of these histories. And how, and, and, and then the other question for folks who are like, you know, really gung-ho about doing this work is are we able to abandon those lies and are we able to embrace the genius and power of those communities that we've rendered disposable? Because at the end of the day, I work with many 
white educators, educators, people who are preparing to be educators, who are terrified of, of um, communities of color, who don't want nothing to do with the communities where their students are from, who are actually low-key afraid of their students, right? And I'm like, why are you here? Because if you don't even see value in this space, right? That you, it's almost like you can't tell the truth about our genius and you can't stop lying about the harm of white supremacy, right? And so both things have to happen. Stop the lies. Like I'm not about to write a five paragraph essay about how prominent Thomas Jefferson was. Like this is a lie. But we protect that so fiercely and then feel like I, I, taught, a, um, I taught a PD the other day and I this came up because every time I spoke about hip hop, folks were in the room, they were like getting it and they were like, you know, we want, oh no, it was actually about language practices, the language practices of black and brown students, which is, they were just like, yeah, you know, we want to affirm their language practices. It's just so much vulgarity. You know, there's just so much vulgarity. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of profanity that's being used. And the first time they said it, I was like, all right, you know, then like three other people made a similar comment and from a seemingly genuine place that they just didn't want, they were so afraid to let that into the space of schooling. I was like, yo, how many of y'all have, and that's, this is what I came, Thomas Jefferson, you know, I'm gonna go ahead and pick on him. How, how many of y'all have him in y'all curriculum? Like, what is it about the way you represent him, the way that you sanitize him and erase all of the evil of Columbus, the genocide, the, the, Ugh, just there's so many layers to it in order to bring him into your classroom. And then you trying to tell me that somebody from the block that's spitting a few bars with some vulgarities in it, that is really just a mirror to American society. Um, you can't have in the classroom. And they were really ruffled. You know, one, one guy actually, he got really upset <laughs> and he's just like, you know, these are different. And I'm like, they are different because ain't nobody on my block commit global genocide. Right. <laughs> so you're right. You're right. We need to get these these white people out of these textbooks. They are too dangerous. You know, like, that's how I feel. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's wild. It's wild. It's wild. And, and it has to do with our fierce commitment to white supremacy. We cannot see ourselves beyond it. Um, and so both have to happen. Stop lying in these history books and tell the truth about the genius of my people, of our people. I, and I, I, I don't know what it's going to take because, you know, that great book, um, Lies My Teacher Told Me from like mm-hmm. a long time ago, right? Like, mm-hmm. So anyway, word. Thank you. It's going right, so to take people that are willing to organize and, and refuse to keep perpetuating those lies. You know, so there's right. like a lot of underground work that, that needs to continue happening. That's right. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time just to wrap up. I'm sure people would love to hear um, what you're working on right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I just um, launched the Center of Racial Justice and Youth Engage Research at UMass Amherst as the uh, co-founding co-director alongside Dr. Keisha Green. And that space has been a beautiful context for what we we've had the, the racial healing collective white co-conspirator collective we've had um a liberating uh you know liberating a liberation um uh program with 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 teachers at an international level 
And, and so there's just so much work that's thriving there that, that seeks to push the bounds of what, um, of the relationships of institutions with institutions with communities, and I'm co-editing the the Journal of Equity and Excellence and, and Education alongside the amazing um, co-editors, uh, Dr. Justin Coles, Dr. Esther Ojito, and Dr. Keisha Green, and we are again pushing the bounds of what academic scholarship needs to look like, sound like, feel like, what it evokes, right? And so that's where a lot of my energy is um, right now. And, um, you know, I'm just, I'm out here, you know, out here doing the good work and I'm always in somebody's community, (laughs) you know, trying to just, just be in community with the folks on the ground. So that's where I'm at. Well, we appreciate you for that and uh, hope and trust that you stay nourished through that community-based work so that you can continue doing all the beautiful things that you're doing. Thank you. Thank Um, you. I appreciate this platform. Yes. Thank you again so much um, for being on the show. And hopefully we talk to you again in the future. Likewise. Okay. Take care. All right. How are we doing?